SRN Survival Radio Network. Now, you can also go to our Facebook page, and we ask that 
you join the Facebook page. That way you are updated on the events that we'll be doing, updated on the upcoming shows, and you will also get the podcast. So that helps you stay in one place with one source. Now, we're also on iTunes. So for you iPhone users, all you have to do is subscribe to iTunes. By the way, it's free of charge. And then go to the Weekly Wellness Show, subscribe to the show, and the shows will come to you automatically. And that way you won't miss a show. And the beauty of podcasts, again, is you can listen to the show anytime, any place, whether you're working out, driving the kids to school, cleaning the house, or just at home chilling, you can partake in a good conversation regarding your health and wellness. Now, next week we have another great show. Uh, I told you last week we're going to have Dr. Williette Robertson to talk to us about staying healthy during travel. You know, the summer is almost over, but that doesn't prevent some of us from still traveling. And so, you know, particularly if you're flying or on a cruise or whatever, going outside of the country, you knew, you need to know some things about being healthy and maintaining your health abroad and even here in the United States. Uh, and you also need to know how to stay fit. And for that reason, Coach Bruce of Orange Theory Fitness is coming back to give us some fitness tips with regard to our traveling and our vacation. So keep that in mind. Put that on your calendar. Better yet, do what I mentioned. Go to iTunes, subscribe, and then the shows will come to you automatically. Join our Facebook page and you'll get the reminders. Now, if you have any questions or topics you'd like for us to talk about on the Weekly Wellness Show, don't hesitate to email me at Dr. Aaron Williams at weeklywellnessshow.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Dr. Aaron Williams. So there are several ways for you to stay in contact with us, so we appreciate that. We appreciate our current listeners and our past listeners as well. Now, today we have another exciting and informative show for you along with an interesting topic and another dynamic guest. You know, last week I mentioned that we're going to be talking about fibroids. Uterine fibroids, you know, these are non-cancerous tumors that grow within the wall of the uterus. You know, they can vary in size, they can vary in number, but a lot of times they can be accompanied by infertility and miscarriage and even an early onset of labor. Now, according to the National Institutes of Health, this is a government body that is under the department or part of the Department of Health and Human Services, most American women will develop fibroids at some point in their lives. One study found that by age 50, 70% of Caucasian Americans and 80% African American women have had fibroids. Now, in many cases, fibroids are believed not to cause symptoms, but in some cases they do. And we're going to hear today as to how they manifest. Now, there are various therapies for these, for this condition that includes drugs and 
surgery and that kind of thing, but we'll get into that today. The bottom line is this affects all of us, and I know, hey, I'm a man. I don't have a uterus, but I have family and friends that have been affected by this. So if you're a male, it might be good to understand a little bit more about fibroids because this can affect you as well. It can affect, you know, how your mate feels. Uh, You know, if someone's having abdominal pain, they don't feel too well. It may affect your sex life, and it could affect the fertility and whether or not you as a couple uh, can continue with your childbirth plan. So more than 200,000 hysterectomies are performed each year for fibroids, and that's an annual direct health care cost of about $2.1 billion. So that's why I invited an expert in this area, someone who does and sees and treats this every day to the show. And that will be Dr. Lakeisha White-Richardson. She's going to be on the show in a few minutes to enlighten us on this. So before that, I'd like to go ahead and take our first commercial break. So, ladies and gentlemen, please stay tuned and be informed. Looking for a cafe with a home-like appeal where all who enter feel like they are part of something? Visit My Coffee Shop, located in East Lake, Atlanta, Georgia. MCS has a full breakfast and lunch menu, offering both hot and cold options, and is home of the amazing basil lemonade. But don't forget their assortment of freshly brewed coffees. Come on by at 2462 Memorial Drive, Atlanta, Georgia, 30317. We're pretty sure my coffee shop at East Lake will become your coffee shop too. iDope, iDope, globally inspired vision stylewear, a fusion of classic heritage and contemporary sophistication. An essential part of your lifestyle and fashion expression. iDope, iDope, vision stylewear for the fashion forward and socially conscious. Let's make this a dope world together. iDope, iDope. Available online at iDope.com. That's E-Y-E-D-O-P-E. iDope.com. Survival Radio Network, with now more than one million downloads. Congratulations to the staff, producers, engineers, and hosts for your tireless pursuit of excellence. And thank you, our loyal listeners, for supporting this movement to inspire, motivate, and educate people worldwide. Survival Radio Network, Survival Radio Christian Network, and our new Survival Sports Radio Network broadcast top-notch shows Sunday through Saturday. Check us out by visiting our website at www.survivalradionetwork.us. SRN, we do radio one million strong. The S-R-N. Welcome back. Welcome back. It is so very nice, and it's a pleasure to have you. 
Uh, we're glad that you carved out some time to listen to the Weekly Wellness Show, your resource for better health on the Survival Radio Network. Our guest today is Dr. Lakeisha White Richardson. She is a fellow of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. That means that she's board certified and she was nominated by her peers to be in this category of physicians. She is also a well-known speaker, consultant, and adjunct clinical professor. In addition, she is a leading expert in sexual dysfunction. Simply put, her mission is to help women improve their sexual health and wellness. She was born and raised in the Mississippi Delta. Dr. Lakeisha is an honor graduate of Xavier University of Louisiana. She obtained her Doctor of Medicine degree from the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. She then completed her internship and residency at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. She is currently in private practice in Greenville, Mississippi. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, let's welcome to the Weekly Wellness Show, Dr. Lakeisha White-Richardson. Good morning. Hi, Dr. Lakeisha. Good morning, good morning. It is such a pleasure to be on the Weekly Wellness Show today. I'm excited. I'm excited. Well, I'm glad to have you. You know, I was... uh, you know, I, I thought this was a very important topic, you know, and, uh, you know, fibroids, of course, I'm a man. Of course, I don't have a uterus, but, you know, I have family. I have friends, and I think a lot of people's awareness got to raise. You know, I, you know I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of the – well, I am a little bit of the Housewives of Atlanta, but when Cynthia Bailey, you know, was diagnosed with fibroids and they video going through all of that, I think that kind of raised awareness a little bit. And so I think with that and a few other things in the media, I'm glad that you are able to carve out some time today to join us and educate us on on this show. Do you, you know, and I noticed also you went to Xavier University. You know, that's uh, they've always been known to produce uh, top pre-medical students for medical school. They are consistently producing um, the most um, number one and producing the most African American physicians. So yes. <laughs> Keep, you're keeping the tradition alive. That's great. That's great. And you practice in Greenville, Mississippi, along the Mississippi River. So do you see a lot of fibroids in your in your practice? Yes. So surprisingly, this topic is very common, and probably on a daily basis I see at least, you know, five to six women who are having issues with fibroids. And I, too, suffer from fibroids and have had to use some of the treatments that we'll talk about later on today. So it is very common. Yeah, I, I that was amazing. The statistics I read, of course, uh, I'm quite sure you already know, are pretty, pretty astounding. I mean, uh, so it's something that I think all of us need to be aware of. And and I, I didn't allude to the fact that fibroids are kind of like, like tumors, but, you know, I'm an oncologist. I treat the bad boys, the bad tumors, the the ones that are cancerous. But fibroid, and, and that's also like a tumor. It's just not in the cancer realm, but it's still a benign tumor that can that can wreak havoc. Is that is that correct? That is 
Absolutely correct. So we consider fibroids to be benign tumors that, that are located in the uterus. Um, and specifically, we focus on four areas because the location of the fibroids also helps us, you know, determine symptoms and complications that can arise. So the fibroids can either be in the lining of the uterus, so inside the cavity. They can be in the muscle of the uterus. They can be in the serosal or what the, the thin lining that surrounds the uterus. And sometimes they can just be attached to the uterus, what we call pedunculated fibroids, or they can sit on a stalk on the uterus. So, But almost all fibroids are considered benign tumors. Wow, yeah. I, I, you know, I looked at, you know, if someone just went to Google and put in fibroids and selected just to look at images, I think those images are pretty astounding because even though these are benign tumors, you can see how they can wreak havoc on a woman's uterus. Uh, so it's, it's, it, it, was, it was kind of uh, uh, different to have a visual with regard to, hey, what is a fibroid? And so you're saying that they, they, uh, they can occur anywhere in the uterus to a certain extent. Yes, and they can and they can range from any size. You know, they can be mm. from asymptomatic to microscopic to where you you find them on pathology after a hysterectomy, or they can get as large as a, gro- a grapefruit. And sometimes I've even had some the size of like a bowling ball. Wow. So, yes. Wow. So it, can we say, or have you found that uh, are symptoms related to size? You know, can you, you know the bigger the the bigger the fibroid, the more pain. Or have you found in some cases, you know, a person may have a lot of pain, but not necessarily a large size fibroid. Well, I think symptoms are absolutely related to size, but also location. So sometimes, of course, if you get some of the larger ones, there's no way mm. you can have something that large and not have pain. But also depending on the location. So um, we'll talk later. Like, for instance, if they're right. in the anterior cul-de-sac, if they're anterior, then you may have more bladder pain versus if it's in the posterior cul-de-sac, you may have more lower back pain, more rectal pain. So uh, pain is associated with the location and the size. Mm-hmm. Now, Back to the incidents, what, what do you, th- are you, are you uh, does your practice correlate with some of the things quoted by, uh, you know, that, that's uh, in, the, in the periodic journal, journals? With yes, regard it to does. Frequency and incidents? Mm-hmm. Yes, and then there are also some other issues that um, increase the risk of fibroids and um, affect the incidence. So like you said, about 20 to 80% of women will develop fibroids by the time they're 50 years old. And the most common age range will be between 40 and 50 because they're perimenopausal, so the bleeding starts to change, but also because they've had the fibroids for so long, the size has probably increased and they're more symptomatic. Um, Family history um, increases the incidence of fibroids uh, almost by three times. So if there's a mother or a grandmother that has had fibroids, you're three times more likely to also have fibroids. And then, of course, African-American women have a higher incidence of fibroids. Um, Also, obesity affects your risk for fibroids. So if you're overweight or obese, um, meaning if you have a large BMI, you're also two to three times more likely to have fibroids. And then some studies, interestingly, interestingly, have showed that red meat and ham have increased the risk of fibroids. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I I think I've I've come across some of that with you know that that there are some dietary issues that that relate and I think um, at least uh, one study was talking I think some of these conditions increase the amount of estrogen uh, is this an estrogen stimulated scenario? It is. 
we're still not 100% sure what mm-hmm. actually causes fibroids, and we're not down to that level yet. But we know one, we know two things that yeah. is either genetic. That is so. There's a genetic predisposition for fibroids, and two, it is hormonal. It is hormonal based because we know that during pregnancy, because mm-hmm. of estrogen and progesterone, fibroids tend to grow. Um, mm-hmm. However, in menopause, when those hormones tend to decline, we know that fibroids tend to shrink. So we know that it is genetically related, and that it is hormonal. We it's based growth is based on hormones, on two hormones, estrogen and progesterone. Mm. Okay. Wow, yeah. So we do know that, and I guess we need to figure out some type of, of foundation or way to deal with that, uh, you know, based on what you just mentioned. That's interesting about the genetic factor and the, and the hereditary factor uh, with your, with if you have, uh, if your mother had them, that increases your chances. Um, and what, is, what are some of those, uh, what are some of those symptoms? Well, Symptoms can have a wide range of symptoms. So sometimes fibroids are just an incidental finding on either physical exam or ultrasound. So some women won't have any symptoms. Normal cycles, no pain. Um, So then some women may have pain. And like I mentioned earlier, depending on the location, um, it differs to where the pain is located. So if they have an anterior fibroid, if it's sitting in the anterior cul-de-sac, they're going to have pressure on the bladder. They're going to have suprapubic pain and may also have frequent urination. If there's a posterior fibroid or it sits in the posterior cul-de-sac, then they're going to have pressure on the rectum. They're going to have pain with bowel movements, or they may have difficulty having bowel movements. And then also you can have pain with intercourse. So it was interesting that you mentioned that this conversation um, is beneficial for males as well because it does affect your partner in other issues besides just her cycles. You know, she may have pain with intercourse. Um, She may want to stop having intercourse altogether if she doesn't get treatment because it becomes so painful. Um, Bloating or enlargement, they may start to have some abdominal distension, Um, gaining weight, tights get closed, getting a little bit tighter around the abdomen. And then the most important symptom, though, is bleeding. Um, And bleeding can range from just a longer cycle, a heavier cycle, uh, more than one cycle per month, and then the most the most severe thing is that women tend to have blood clots. So they tend to lose more blood with their cycle than normal. So when women start to soak more than one or two pads an hour, if they're soaking their clothes, women tend to start doubling up on products. They use a tampon and a pad, wearing two sanitary napkins at one time. That's when the bleeding gets to be excessive and when women tend to tend to go over into being anemic and being symptomatic. Wow. Yeah. um, Yeah. Okay. I can see how all that works because, if you're losing blood, of course, you're going to become anemic. Uh, so what, to a certain extent, you can become anemic. And then, uh, of course, and, and all that varies to how much of blood that you lose. But, you know, and I think I've seen this before where women complain of just generalized weakness, malaise, just not as energetic. And so those are, so, so you think those are some of the signs of when you might start talking to your family doctor or your, or your uh, gynecologist about what's going on. Exactly. And so some women, because they've been having heavy cycles for so long, they don't even recognize that that's abnormal. They've never discussed it with their with their OBGYN. They just think that that's normal for me. I've always had 10-day cycles. I've always had to use overnight pads. And so as that culminates and it happens over a long period of time, then they start to have those symptoms of weakness, fatigue, headache, fast heart rate, and 
um, that's when they find that they're anemic. So definitely when they start to have those symptoms, they need to discuss that with their primary care doctor. But I really want women to, to understand that that's not a normal cycle. A normal cycle should be about three to five days. Um, maybe two days of heavy flow, but the flow should tend to decline as the cycle ends. Anytime you're doubling up on products or changing a sanitary napkin more than two times an hour, that's too much bleeding. And hopefully we can get women to start seeing their physicians sooner before we have to, you know, do blood transfusions, iron transfusions, or have syncopal episodes secondary to anemia. Mm-hmm. And so, I, like I tell people about this show, the Weekly Wellness Show, you know, it's for information, informational purposes only. We're not here to necessarily diagnose or treat disease. We want uh, so you can see your family doctor or your gynecologist. Exactly. Right, right. So now um, I've read some, some things back to foods, uh, you know, about saturated fats and, and high um uh, the foods that are high in carbohydrates, have you found any of those to be related? I have. And um, actually, I have a lot of patients that are tend to not to like to use medication or more holistic, like more holistic medicine. And they'll read articles and they'll come tell me, you know, well, I stopped eating red meat or they're uh-huh. eating more healthy green vegetables. And they notice a difference in their symptoms. They notice a decrease in the pain. They, and they also notice a decrease in the bleeding. The fibroid size hasn't really changed much, but symptomatically they're doing a whole lot better. Right. Uh, now, I, I read yesterday that have you found any relationship between relaxers and fibroids, relaxers for the hair? No, not not that I've I haven't not asked. Not substantial. Not yes. Right, right, yeah, uh, yeah. Because you hear all these things, and somebody asked me about that, and I looked it up, and uh, I saw one study, but it wasn't anything that was actual. You know, what we would say in the medical field, you know, uh, credible or anything that you would go out and actually you know, say to a patient or uh, that kind of thing. But, you know, that was one question that we thought we we, uh, we wanted to kind of make clear. Um, so now how young have you seen patients with this? Um, and, and does the onset of of a of, 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 of woman having periods, does that have anything to, to do with that? I have not seen the onset of periods having any effect on how young women um, actually start developing their fibroids. Mm-hmm. The youngest the youngest I have ever seen in practice has been about 24. Um, wow. And just on an incidental, on an incidental finding. Mm-hmm. Um, but given the size that hers were, I'm sure she probably, she had probably had them for at least three years. So she probably had started having symptoms at 21 years old. And by the time I saw her at 24, she had some pretty large fibroids. Wow. Wow. So what would you advise with regard to symptoms of of uh someone listening that you know when you when should you start when you start at, start getting suspicious it's basically what having some of the symptoms that you mentioned Yes but for the smaller fibroids and again depending on the location really the the main symptom I would tell women to start seeking help is if their cycles are too heavy I think okay. that would be the first important sy- symptom because, like we mentioned earlier, a normal cycle should be just about three to five days 
heavy to a medium flow. And like my patient, she had been having heavy cycles for so long, but she just thought it was normal because family members say, oh, I've I've always had a heavy cycle. It's okay, but it's really not okay to be having heavy cycles. And that could be a sign that you may have some false, some small fibroids in the endometrial cavity that can be treated early before they increase in size and interrupt fertility. Mm-hmm. And do, do and I guess the the question I have in my mind, I have an answer, but I want to make sure with you. Uh, and so, abdominal pain is that is that usually consistent with the fibroid or not always? Not always, because you know, mm-hmm. abdominal pain can be associated with endometriosis. Uh, it can also be associated if it's an acute abdominal pain. It can be associated with pelvic inflammatory disease. But it, it is going to be a common symptom, one of the common symptoms for fibroids as well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you hear a lot of a lot of uh, variations, uh, but I think, uh, you know, some of these are some of the core things, like you mentioned, that we those that can be virtual red flags to us. Uh, and, you know, to the men as well, I mean, if your mate is having these kind of symptoms, you, you might need to say, uh, you know, hey, dear, uh, you know, what, have you seen – our family doctor about this have have you seen your gynecologist about this uh and these are some of the things that uh we need to all keep in mind so i i think this is good information you know dr lakeisha i'd like to uh talk further about testing and that kind of thing but before we do that is is there a way that uh that that uh the audience can reach you uh, and what's some of your your contact social media Yes, I am actually on Facebook where I do weekly live Facebook streams on health information just like this. You can mm-hmm. follow me at Dr. Lakeisha OBGYN. That's www.facebook.com backslash Dr. L A K E I S H A O B G Y N. Or you can reach me at 662 305 Great, great. Okay, and ladies and gentlemen, we'll be repeating that information, and we'll continue our conversation. But first, I'd like to go to our second commercial break. So, ladies and gentlemen, please stay tuned and be informed. Do you have a business, product, service, or an event coming up? Is your current marketing getting you nowhere? Survival Radio Network is an award-winning network with over 1 million downloads. We're offering high-exposure 30-second spots on our network, reaching diverse demographics both locally and nationwide. Give us a call at 323-977-8172 or visit our website at www.survivalradionetwork.us today. SRN. We do radio. Do you have tax issues, owe back taxes, or need tax relief? Contact L&B Tax Service today. L&B offers you over 15 years of expertise and first-class tax service for individuals, professionals, and business owners. With nationwide service, you can easily find a location near you. Contact one of our tax professionals through our website, lbtaxservice.com. That's www.lbtaxservice.com. L&B Tax Service Incorporated. Tax professionals that you can trust. 
Do you know that having a dirty filter in your heating and air system can cause major damage to your unit and pollute the air in your home? Having proper maintenance to your heating and air system is just like getting a tune-up on your car. Because you want today and avoid spending unnecessary money tomorrow. Call Temperature Design Heating and Air today. 770-823-7160. That's 770-823-7160. Hi, I'm Ryan Seacrest for RAD. Over 300 people in this country are killed every week by a drunk driver. That's the equivalent of two 747 plane crashes every single week. And the problem isn't going away unless we all do our part to stop it. So if you see someone who's about to drive after drinking, get the keys. Don't leave it up to anyone else. Friends don't let friends drive drunk. A public service announcement brought to you by RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. The S-R-N. Welcome back. Welcome back. You are listening to the Weekly Wellness Show, your resource for better health on the Survival Radio Network. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Williams, and our guest today is Dr. Lakeisha White Richardson. Dr. Lakeisha, we were continuing a conversation about fibroids, and we, I think you outlined very well what some of the symptoms might be with regard to this, uh, this condition. Now, once, we, once someone goes to their gynecologist and, or, or family practice physician, uh, what what type of testing and evaluation uh, goes on with that? Of course. So first, you know, we're going to do our history and physical exam. And like we talked about, we're going to be looking specifically for those highlight symptoms that we mentioned earlier. And so once we hear those key words, we're going to be thinking, you know, possible fibroids, possible, you know, uterine abnormalities. And so the next step would be a bimanual exam on the physical exam where we palpate the uterus and the ovaries and looking to see the size of the uterus and see if the shape is distorted um, on physical exam. And so when we size fibroids, we also we use the same size that we use for pregnancy. So we'll say a 10-week size uterus, a 12-week size uterus. Sometimes they even get as big as a 20-week size uterus. So that would be the first thing, a history and physical exam. And then after we find abnormalities, the very first test we'll do is a pelvic ultrasound. So the same study you get when you're pregnant, we use it to look at the uterus outside of pregnancy so we can visualize the fibroids and the location. Okay, so those are some things that that this could be formed definitely in a gynecologist's office, and I'm assuming, I guess depends on how the confidence or the amount of patients that a primary care physician would see. Would, Would they do this as well, or should they just go ahead and get a referral to the gynecologist? They can do it as well. If they're doing pap smears and they're doing bimanual exams, they may not be able to size it or identify where the fibroids are, but they can definitely tell that the uterus is enlarged or abnormal. And to follow up with a pelvic ultrasound would not be outside their scope of practice. And then they can do the referral to a, to a GYN for other treatment options and for further diagnosis. Now, sometimes depending on how large the uterus is, it makes them suspicious for, of course, a cancer or maybe a large adnexomas versus a large uterine fibroid. So a CT scan or MRI is also appropriate for a larger size uterus, like 20-week size uterus, because you want to visualize to make sure you're not, 
missing an adnexal mass versus uterine fibroids. And then once they see a specialist, an OBGYN or a reproductive endocrinologist, if we are talking to women who, who desire fertility, we may also do a test called an HSG or hysterosalpingogram where we do an X-ray and insert dye through the uterus so we can visualize the endometrial cavity. And that helps us determine if the fibroids are affecting the patient's ability to conceive. Mm. What, Dr. Lakeisha, when should uh, a young lady start seeing a gynecologist? I mean, you know, we, we all know about the primary care physician um, recommendation, but when should they start seeing a specialist? So I recommend that that moms start bringing their daughters to see a gynecologist at about 12, and that, that mm-hmm. reason is only because of the HPV vaccine. So um, I just want to make sure that all pri- primary doctors are offering that vaccine to the daughters. Um, in 9 to 12, well, 9 to 26 is when they can have the vaccine. But pap smears are not due to 21 because of our new guidelines. So even if they're sexually active, teenagers do not require pap smears. But they need to be educated about personal hygiene, about their menstrual cycles, about the HP vaccine, and about birth control options when they are appropriate. Wow. Yeah. I thought that was uh, something that we really need to let the audience know about. Um, now, getting along with the testing and beyond that, now you have uh, a young lady, a young woman in the room, uh, you know, in your office. What do you begin with regard to treatment options? Well, first I, ha- I need to know what's the most common problem for them. So first I ask what is bothering you the most. Is it the bleeding? Is it pain? Or um, I specifically need to know, do they want to have more children? Because if they want to have more children, then the options are different than someone who's had their tubes tied or who's done with their childbearing years. So let's talk about infertility first. So if a female sees me and we have fibroids and she wants to have more babies, then there are two options. One option is surgical removal of the fibroids called a myomectomy. And there are several options to have that done. Now, one is an open procedure where we actually make an incision on the belly and we do an X-lap and we open the uterus and we remove the fibroids. But it can also be done laparoscopically now depending on the surgeon's skills and depending on the size of the fibroids. So for women who want to have children who have large fibroids, we will talk about a myomectomy, removing the fibroids but conserving the uterus. Um, if the fibroids are small, then they can do an injection called Lupron, which is an antagonist for their estrogen hormones. You get the injection once a month for three months, and it's like a medical menopause. So what we're going to do is basically shut the ovaries down, decrease the amount of estrogen that they're producing so that we can allow the fibroids to shrink. And Lupron success, it will decrease the size of the fibroids by, by about 50%. So if we have a 5-centimeter fibroid that's blocking the uterus, and we can decrease it to about a 2-centimeter size fibroid without surgery, and then the female can go ahead and get pregnant. Some of the most common side effects, though, of Lupron is going to be hot flashes, vaginal dryness, and they're going to feel like they're in menopause temporarily, but we can treat those symptoms, and, and those symptoms go away when we finish with the medication. Is there um, an advantage? What, is there, what factors should a patient consider when they're talking about, you mentioned laparoscopic versus uh, like an open incision, wide excision. Are there advantages to either one? I mean, obviously one is the size of the scar, but are there other factors that the patient need to, needs to take uh, into consideration? 
or they're pretty, you know, they're pretty much. I'm assuming they're probably pretty much equivalent with regard to the end result. But what are the factors may one consider with regard to that? So there are two factors that patient may want to consider. One is, of course, laparoscopic allows us to return to work sooner, and it decreases our hospital stay. However, you also have to consider that when you're having a laparoscopic procedure that involves fibroids, the way that they destroy those fibroids by morselation. So you, you have to understand the risk that's associated with having a laparoscopic procedure for fibroids. So if they morselate the, the fibroids, you're talking about cutting it up into tiny pieces and then removing it from the abdomen through a small port. And, of course, you know, there are new um, studies out, you know, people who have fibroids morselated before they, we started putting them in the bag have ended up with a cancer that was seeded into the abdomen. So that's something that they have to take into consideration if they're going to consider having the laparoscopic procedure done. So from what you're saying, there are a number of treatment options for this. There are. And, and there are several uh, options for women mm-hmm. who are done having children. So we haven't talked about those yet. Right, right. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and do that. Um, you know, let's say they're done. As I say, a lot of these occur, you know, later in life. And so let's say you have a, you know, a, well, I hate to put a cap on when someone can have a child, but let's say she's there. It's 59, okay, and they're having abdominal pain, a lot of bleeding. They've gone to their family doctor and said, well, you know, we think you might have fibroids, and they come to a gynecologist. So how different is that conversation now in the consultation room? So now the conversation is we're we're looking for something where we say definitive treatment. So, um, and I did mention earlier now, for those women who choose to have those options, you know, they're still at a risk for new fibroids reoccurring, and they're still going to be at a risk in their lifetime for having to have a definitive surgery down the road. Those procedures are just temporary to allow them to be able to bear children, but eventually they will have to have something done permanently. So for women who are done having children, we tend to have a conversation where we talk about definitive therapy, where we're talking about doing something so that they won't ever have symptoms from their fibroids again. And the most common surgery, like you mentioned at the very beginning, is a hysterectomy. Fibroids are the most common reason why we do hysterectomies in the United States. And that, you know, people say partial or total, um, but we're talking about removing the uterus, removing the entire uterus with the fibroids so that they no longer have pain, they no longer have bleeding, and that we remove the fibroids in their entirety. So that is one option. There's another option for women who are um, high risk for surgery. So we have women who have COPD or who have congestive heart failure where the risk of surgery um, is higher for death. And so for these women, there's a procedure called a uterine artery embolization. So it's kind of like having a heart cath where they go through the veins of the leg and they insert seeds and we see the blood vessels that feed the uterine fibroids so that we can decrease the amount of blood supply. And as a result, we decrease the size and the symptoms from the fibroids. Mm, mm. Now, with this definitive treatment, particularly with the hysterectomy, do are, do patients have to go on some type of hormone replacement regimen? Well, it depends on what they have. So in common terms, when people say they want a partial hysterectomy, um, those women are talking that they want to keep their ovaries. And so those women don't have to use hormone replacement therapy. They will go through natural menopause at about an average age of 51. 
for women who say they want a total hysterectomy, um, and in layman's terms, they mean they want us to take the ovaries, the tubes, the uterus, and the cervix. Those women will immediately go into what we call surgical menopause. So as soon as we take those those organs out, within 24 to 48 hours, they will start to have hot flashes. And they don't have to go on hormone replacement therapy. It is a conversation that we have. Depending on their age, especially if they're 40 and they never had a hot flash before, they may want to be on hormone replacement therapy because other symptoms are decreased sex drive, um, mood swings, and vaginal dryness. And so we recommend hormone replacement therapy, the lowest dose for the shortest period of time for women who want to do hormone replacement therapy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's been, as you know, a big topic uh, over the years as related to, to menopause, related to whether it's, uh, you know, a cause or influences whether someone has breast cancer. Uh, uh, let's, let's, uh, uh, let's say a person has a history of, of breast cancer. Uh, would the treatment still be the same? Or let's say if they have a, a risk of a high risk of being, uh, at being diagnosed with breast cancer, would any of these affect uh, that? Yes, it does. So if women have a strong family history of breast cancer or if they specifically know that they have a family history of the genes, um, BRCA1 or 2, BR, BRCA1 or BRCA2, that definitely changes the conversation and the surgery that we recommend. So we would recommend a total hysterectomy with removal of the ovaries and tubes because of their risk for not only breast cancer but ovarian cancer as well. And treatment options for those women would not be hormones, but there are other options um, like SSRIs, um, a low-dose antidepressant for the hot flashes or vasomotor symptoms, and then locally we'll just use a long-acting vaginal moisturizer versus hormone replacement therapy for the vaginal dryness. Mm, okay. Um, and you talked about, you know, the, having a hysterectomy. Uh, what, what happens post-op? What happens as far as, you know, going back to work you know, I guess these are factors one should consider. And you mentioned a time issue. Are there other things that, you know, what about like wound healing and that kind of thing? Would they need um, someone to care for them? What, what does that look like after hysterectomy? So that's a great, great question. So post-op from a hysterectomy for the first two weeks would be the same about for everyone. And, and I'm just going to mention the types of hysterectomies that are currently available. So mm-hmm. there's a, you can have a laparoscopic hysterectomy, um, you can have a vaginal hysterectomy, or you can have an abdominal hysterectomy. An abdominal hysterectomy is the most invasive, where you're going to have either a fanistil incision or a vertical midline incision. And so with a vaginal or laparoscopic hysterectomy, most patients can go home in 24 to 48 hours. Um, they'll either have no incisions or very small incisions. Uh, with a abdominal hysterectomy, people tend to stay in the hospital two to three days, um, and the recovery period is about six weeks on average. Some women have stayed out as long as eight weeks, and that's not including any post-op complications. So with wound care, if you actually have a large incision, then you know it's most important that you just keep it clean and dry. The laparoscopic incisions are smaller than two inches. I mean, very tiny incisions that you keep clean and dry. And those women are up and moving in a week. However, if they return to work, they still can't do any heavy lifting um, and no squatting. And then they're all going to be restricted from vaginal, from anything vaginal, pelvic rest for the full six weeks because they all have to allow 
the cuff to heal. So those women usually will need assistance at home for about two weeks because if they're taking narcotics, they can't drive. So if they need to leave the house, they'll need an assistant. And then they'll be sleeping from the pain medicine as well, so they'll need assistance with cooking and cleaning. But after two weeks, the last four weeks of recovery, patients are ten, tend to be able to do for themselves. Mm, okay. Yeah, I, yeah. I guess these are questions that that's, the answers to these uh, you know are, are individual, and and I guess you know each woman will have to sit down and and discuss this with her mate or significant other, or other potential people that are involved. They have to consider child care. They have to consider, of course, their job. And that kind of thing, but you know, it's it, it's good you have options, but then you have to sit down and you know, at at some point, finally go ahead and make a choice. Um, and that's great because I think a while back the only option was a hysterectomy. Is that correct? Um, that's correct. And, and now, you know, it's like you know, with with, with oncology with breast cancer. You know, back in the day, where the woman had a uh, breast tumor the size of a penny or the size of a grapefruit, they all got mastectomies. And that's not common today, and, and so women have options. So it's good to see that with this condition, you know, there there are options, and there are certain yes. things that, that you can do. Um, are, are there any prevention methods that are, that are that are out there that that you all feel as, as obstetricians, uh, gynecologists that are, that are effective? Not really any preventive um, measures, because unlike with breast cancer and other cancers, these benign tumors are genetic. I mean, pretty much if, uh-huh. if you're predisposed to have fibroids, you're probably going to have them. Now, there are some things that women can do when we, we talked about treatment that can control their symptoms to keep them from being to ending up on the OR table. So NSAIDs, ibuprofen or Aleve, if they're just having mild pain, we just recommend that they use over-the-counter NSAIDs. Um, birth control, any form of birth control can really can maintain the symptoms of bleeding. So for women who aren't having pain but are having significant bleeding from the fibroids, don't have to have surgery either. You know, they can have an IUD, they can use Depo-Provera, or they can simply go back on birth control pills for management of uh, the heavy bleeding. But unfortunately, they're, besides diet, <laughs> mm-hmm. you really can't prevent fibroids at this time. Wow. Now, let's say a woman, you found this person, this woman with, with fibroids, and uh, at that point in time they decide not to, uh, have them removed or do anything definitively, so to speak. Uh, is there a scenario where that person would have uh, periodic ultrasounds or periodic exams to see uh, if this is uh, continues to grow, or would one just rely on symptoms? No. So once we've documented that they have fibroids with their annual exam, when they're coming in for their their pap smear and their clinical breast exam, we'll look back at the chart and see what size they were last year. And on bimanual, again, we'll chart whether we still think it's a 12-week size uterus or if we think it's grown a little bit, a little a little more, what we're suspicious of is rapid growth. And so, you know, there is an instance where you can have that, that leosarcoma. And so if we've grown from a 12-week uterus in one year's time to a 20-week size uterus, that's, that's rapid growth for fibroids because they are slow-growing benign tumors. So rapid growth makes us suspicious that there may be something abnormal going on, but we will address it every year with the annual exam, on bimanual exams just so we can document growth.
Right. Yeah, I mean, that's something, you know, so I guess, you know, with that, a woman doesn't necessarily have to make a definitive decision at that point in time and kind of kind of watch for waiting, depending on the symptoms and their, their pertinent situation, a current situation. Uh, they can kind of, let, kind of let this information kind of settle in, decide whether I want to have, uh, you know, hysterectomy, decide whether I want to have uh, another type of procedure, and also decide, hey, when I get ready to have this procedure, this is what needs to uh, take place with regard to, you know, your care. What am I going to do with the kids? Um, how can my mate help me out uh, or family, you know, help me out? So all of these, I, I think, are, are pertinent things that one, you know, could consider. Um, have you found this uh, to be more in, in the Mississippi Delta or about I- the same from a, on a national level? I'm sure it's the same on the national level, but uh, in residency, because I trained in Mississippi as well, mm. I mean, the amount of fibroids that we saw and the size of fibroids that we saw is amazing. Um, and I don't know if that's just because of the access to health care, um, since I do live in a rural area and just, you know, the lack of education, but every day, every day I'm seeing more and more women with fibroids. But back to something you just said, I think education and just knowing whether or not you have fibroids is very, very important, even if you're not ready for treatment. Because, say, if you're 24 and you find out that you have fibroids, then that mm-hmm. may change when you decide to have children. If you were thinking, oh, I want to get a Ph.D., I'm not going to have children until I'm 35. But if you have fibroids, you may want to readjust your life because that's going to affect your fertility. And then for mm-hmm. women who don't even want to have children, but it's an expensive procedure. You know, you need to plan financially. You need to know how much your deductible is, how much of your deductible needs to be met before you can even have your surgery, how much time you have to have off work. Like you said, you need to you need to make life planning um, when you're having a major surgery because regardless of the route, a hysterectomy is still considered major surgery, and it takes a lot of planning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To get your life scheduled um, so that you can you can do it successfully, so that you can have a successful surgery without complications, and so that you can have the nourishment and the healing and the support, so that you have a healthy six to eight week recovery period and decrease your risk of complications. I agree wholeheartedly, and you mentioned this insurance thing uh, with all this going on. Uh, I, I'm assuming that a hysterectomy is. You know, I mean, ladies and gentlemen out there, you know, I mean, you know, when you go to the doctor, you know, you probably have to pay a copay, but a lot of things you have to get pre-certification for. Do you find that that hysterectomy is is an issue, or you have a lot of problems getting that pre-certified? Pre-certified, but I guess my bigger question is also, do you have problems with insurance companies pre-approving some of the newer treatment options uh, for? the treatment of fibroids? Anything that's uh, still controversial uh, that's in that they're trying, of course, insurance companies don't want to pay for. And I didn't mention, but there are two procedures where you can have a laparoscopic procedure done where they freeze or send electric currents to the fibroids and decrease the size. So that's mm. one of the things that insurance companies may or may not pay for um, because it's still in studies at some university centers. With the hysterectomies in general, with with documentation of ultrasound findings and symptoms, and then usually a hematocrit that qualifies them for anemia, most hysterectomies get pre-certified and approved 
without any without any complications from the insurance companies. Lupron, the injection, because it is expensive, it's about seven hundred to fifteen hundred dollars per injection. Insurance companies tend to um, not want to pay for that. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they give me guidelines if they they want to know if if I'm using the injection to decrease the size of the fibroid so that I can change my surgical route. So if it'll help me go from an abdominal hysterectomy to a vaginal hysterectomy, which means that ultimately it saves the insurance company money because we've gone from a three-day hospital stay to a 24- to 48-hour observation stay, then they'll approve the Lupron for that indication. But sometimes they want to approve it just for um, treatment with no, no plans for surgery or treatment for fertility. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, yeah, those the, this this does require uh, a lot of information, taking in information first, and and deciding on what to do. And speaking of information, Dr. Lakeisha, how how can the audience uh, hear you more and and hear you talk about other other gynecologic conditions and conditions that you treat? It has been a pleasure being on the show today, Dr. Williams. I've enjoyed being on the weekly wellness show. And, guys, I am Dr. Lakeisha, a board-certified OBGYN, specializing in helping women who are struggling with life, sexual dysfunction, and self-image. Through my programs, products, and innovative medicine, I help women live purposeful, powerful, and passionate lives. You can follow me on Facebook at Dr. Lakeisha OBGYN. That's www.facebook.com backslash Dr. L-A-K-E-I-S-H-A OBGYN. Or you can reach me at 662-305-9626. Well, Dr. Lakeisha, it's been great. I, I love following you on Facebook myself, and I'm quite sure a lot of the audience will get a lot more information so, we, again, thanks. And, hey, we hope to have you back, Dr. Lakeisha, with uh, another exciting gynecologic or obstetric topic. Well, thank you. I love to be back on the Weekly Wellness Show. It's been a pleasure. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes another episode of the Weekly Wellness Show. If you missed any of this, you can listen to it by podcast on iTunes or go to our Facebook page. And hey, guess what? If you think somebody else can benefit from this information, share it. Let them know about how they can listen to this podcast. We'll be back next week with another exciting show. So, till next week, be healthy, be happy, and be kind.
Right now, save 50% off everything at Gap Factory and 50 to 70% off everything at Banana Republic Factory. That's right, 50% off or more on everything in stores and online. Save with tea starting at $6.99 and 40% off clearance at Gap Factory stores. And at Banana Republic Factory stores, fabulous tops start at $9.99 and 50% off clearance. Hurry! Search our store locator for your nearest Gap Factory and Banana Republic Factory store or shop us online. 